Perry, Senior Partner at ProClinical Executive. Recently, I spoke to Bonnie Anderson, who's the co-founder and executive chairwoman at Verisite as part of our Female Leader Series, and she was describing her journey setting up her life sciences business for a successful IPO. Let's hear from Bonnie. Once you choose to bring in public investors into the company, they want to track your progress quarterly, whether you want that or not. To survive and be successful, you've got to build in good controls. You have to build in good projecting and forecasting. If you've already thought through a plan B, you can pivot very quickly and not lose beat. to be joined here today by Bonnie H. Anderson. Uh, Bonnie is co-founder and chief executive chairwoman at Verisite. Um, Verisite's a global diagnostics company that aims to transform outcomes for patients all over the world at every step of their journey in cancer and other diseases. Ms. Anderson's career spans over 40 years in regulated diagnostics and life science markets. She co-founded Verisite in 2008 and served as Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Board until June 1st, 2021, when she assumed the role of Chief Executive Chairwoman. Ms. Anderson led Verisite's initial public offering in 2013, spearheaded commercialization of its market-leading products, and was the architect of the company's vision to become a global enterprise with a growing menu of advanced genomic diagnostics tests and its own distributed instrument platform. Prior to Verisite, Ms. Anderson provided strategic consulting services to venture capital firms and early stage businesses following 18 years in leadership positions at Beckman Coulter. She serves on the board of Bruker Corporation, DNA Script, and the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, and is trustee. Emeritus of the Keck Graduate Institute of Applied Life Sciences. Additionally, Ms. Anderson is president of the Coalition for the 21st Century Medicine and previously served on the board of Castle Biosciences. She has received numerous awards for her industry leadership, including the Wallace H. Coulter Award for Healthcare Innovation, Fiercest Women in Life Sciences, 100 Most Creative People in Business, most influential women in Bay Area business and Bay Area's most admired CEOs. In addition, she's won Women of Influence uh, from Silicon Valley Business Journal. Under Ms. Anderson's leadership, Verisite has been named a top workplace by the Bay Area News Group based solely on employee feedback for seven consecutive years. Ms. Anderson graduated from Indiana University of Pennsylvania with a BS in medical technology and in 2012 was honoured with a Distinguished Alumni Award. Bonnie, thanks for joining me for International Women's Day. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I know uh, I know many women are going to appreciate uh, the time that you're taking to share your experience and advice. Um, so I'm going to dive right into some questions here. Um, in, in 2008, you co-founded Verisite that was during the economic crisis. What inspired you to start Verisite and why did you choose to start it at that time as opposed to waiting until the economy turned around? Well, we actually founded the company out of an incubator that had been funded by the three founding backers of Verisite. 
Kleiner Perkins, TPG Biotech, and Versant Ventures. These are, you know, I guess household names in the VC world, especially back then. And we had been incubating uh, to identify a new market opportunity to start a diagnostics company. And when we formulated the business plan for Verisite, was which was really aimed at identifying the unmet clinical need across many cancer indications for getting a more accurate diagnosis for patients, helping them avoid unnecessary and often invasive workup that they would undergo. And of course, all of that had a benefit of, of cost effectiveness to the healthcare system. When we mapped all those opportunities out and found a Verisite, they all agreed to put their funding Series A money in in February of 2008, which landed us about $21 million of financing for a round, which was actually quite a bit of money back then. And that was a good thing because when the markets crashed later that year in September, we had enough cash to tighten our belt on the spend and and deliver on a runway that otherwise we probably would have had to raise money to get through. That's brilliant. Thanks, Bunny. <laughs> what, uh, what was the greatest challenge you had to come in the early days of Verisite, perhaps to start the company or, or get funding or sell your first product? Well, for us, the challenge wasn't so much the funding, because as I said, we were lucky enough, fortunate enough to have our three founding backers all at the table as we were formulating the company and deciding, you know, what sort of business we wanted to build together. So that was really nice. But challenges um, in the early days, and there were many, I mean, just to name a few, we had to balance the speed at which we could advance our programs with spend. Um, again, back to your earlier question, we had to really tighten our belt in September of 2008 when the markets crashed. And our goal was to preserve our cash so that we could actually get our first product to market before we had to raise another round of financing, or at least close to that. Uh, we actually were able to uh, achieve that. But we had to balance spend with speed. And speed was very dictated by the enrollment rate that we could do into the clinical trial that would create the clinical cohort that we would use to not only discover our biomarkers, but also validate the test for market launch. So a lot of challenges around managing the right priorities, the right investments, not doing anything that was outside the scope at that point of really, truly getting that first product advanced. Awesome. So balancing spend with speed. Thanks. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, and then you've led you led Verisite's IPO in 2013, just five years after launching the company. Many CEOs would love to be in that position uh, to take their company public. When is the right time to go public? I don't think there is a definition for that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's also not always the decision of a CEO, right? Um, I would say you got to be careful what you ask for. Running a public company changes dramatically the role of a CEO, and it also puts a lot of pressure on the company. So I kind of think about it as a balance between internal versus external factors. Um, on one hand, you want to have internal confidence 
that you know exactly not just where you are at the time of the IPO, but what does the projections and confidence in the projections of business success? And that can be revenue. It can be additional catalysts and milestones. It can be hitting goals around clinical trials and data unveiling, whatever those milestones are. You want to have very solid predictability of those because when you're running a public company, you will put those catalysts out and the way that you build value and confidence with public investors is hitting them every time or exceeding them. And so you move from a company focused on the achievement of a long-term goal to one that has to become focused on a quarterly cadence, which means very good predictability so that you don't promise something that then doesn't happen. Companies always take a big hit for that. On the external side, though, you also want to pick a time like right now would not be one of those times, <laughs> at least in our space. <laughs> this is not a time to do an IPO when, you know, we're almost at war in Russia and all these terrible factors. But you want to pick a time, and this is where your banking relationships and, you know, your relationships with your external attorneys and things can help, where the market is quite attractive, where investors are actually quite excited about investing in the space that you're in, that your product has achieved a milestone that has garnered a lot of attention, you've got good data, you have a good rationale around why you will be successful driving revenue and growth with the product. And when those two things intersect quite nicely, it's kind of the perfect world for an IPO. Oh, thank you for articulating that so beautifully. Um, and I think you may have touched a little bit on this, um, but what should first-time founders and CEOs know about running a public company and how it differs from running a private company? Yeah, I think typically private companies are usually very focused on achieving milestones of that are product oriented, technology oriented, science oriented. And they sort of have the whole company rallied around those key events. And it if that if that goal is a year from now or 12, 13, 14 months from now, that's fine. The company can keep that goal and then track their progress toward it. But once you choose to bring in public investors into the company, um, they want to track your progress quarterly, whether you want that or not. And so you're sort of agreeing when you become public that you are going to be under a microscope and be able to deliver a quarterly message to investors that keeps them excited about what you've just accomplished and where you're headed next quarter. Obviously, you've got to keep their eye on that long-term vision, but you can't have one without the other. So it is very different. And I think some of the team members that certainly in my case, I loved being part of the teams that were rallying around building commercialization plans and what products we were going to do next and all this sort of long-term visioning with the company. Once we went public, I still got to do some of that, but I spent an enormous amount 
amount of time with investors, educating them on our business, raising more money as time went on, uh, building our plans and preparation for our quarterly conference calls, analyst meetings, um, all these things become a big priority. So the life of a CEO and a CFO changed dramatically once you move from a private to prop public company. On a positive note, though, um, it is it creates discipline in a company to be public because to survive and be successful, you've got to build in good controls. You have to build in good uh, projecting and forecasting. So it disciplines a team to get really good at business metrics once they become public, and that can be great. And it also, of course, gives your employees a pathway to uh, realize some of the value that they've helped create on their equity that they usually get in joining a private company. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting, and it sounds like you and the team were were able to make that transition really well. Um, so there's a lot of new things that sounds like come in um, when it's a public company. So thanks, Bonnie, for that. Um, thinking back on your journey with Verisite, what are three lessons you learned or principles you operate by that you believe are most valuable to run a successful and profitable business? Well, I'm a believer in focus and prioritization, and I think that it's really easy in the world we live in with science and technology just advancing every day. You can answer clinical questions that two decades ago we would never dream of answering with the tools that we have today, and, and that's very exciting, but it also really teases you to always want to follow what, what we would call follow rabbits down the rabbit holes, which can be very distracting to a company. So I've always been a big believer in focus and prioritization. We entered every year while I was leading the company with the list of our top five to 10 goals we needed to achieve as a company every year in January. And we would take those through the entire organization so that every employee knew what they needed to do to link to the overall top corporate goals. So I think focus is really important. Um, the other thing that we uh, spent a lot of time on was planning, um, not just product planning, business planning, but also thinking longer term so that we could fully evaluate new indications and new ideas we had for bringing products to market. We could take a year, two years while another product was being commercialized to fully evaluate that opportunity and know exactly which clinical question are we answering, why will the patient benefit from that? Why will the doctor want to order this test? What makes it better for the doctor? And lastly, but not least importantly, is why will a payer pay? Because those are all the hurdles to adoption. So we've done a lot of planning and we also often talk about always having a plan, but also always having a plan B. And that is anticipating proactively where key milestones may not be achieved because something goes wrong and plan in advance what you will do 
if that happens, because inherently some of them will. And if you've already thought through a plan B, you can pivot very quickly to plan B and not lose a beat. We actually had a very good example of this early on uh, as we were bringing our first flagship thyroid cancer test to market. Um, this test was amazing because it was designed to identify patients that were benign so they wouldn't have to undergo a surgery to get a diagnosis. And mostly in cancer, we try to go find the cancer. But in this case, the only way to avoid an unnecessary surgery was to find patients who were truly and honestly benign with a high degree of accuracy. So that by itself was a little bit of a novelty. But our plan initially, we had collaborations with some of the really top university uh, medical centers across the nation. And they were going to bring samples into our program that had been and frozen from previous patients. And uh, there were not a lot of technologies back then to preserve DNA and RNA really well. And we're kind of an RNA house, which is even more hard than preserving DNA. And so when we got to the point where we were bringing all of these samples in and we were going to run them through our extraction and see what we had, uh, we had also already unveiled a multi-center IRB approved clinical trial to enroll samples and patients prospectively. So if those samples didn't work, we already had the nuts and bolts of that prospective clinical trial underway. Lo and behold, I'm sure you know why I'm telling you this, uh, this case. Uh, we we uh, put all these frozen samples through the extraction and they all came out garbage. <laughs> that isn't a scientific term, by the way. Um, but essentially, we couldn't extract any meaningful data out of them because they just had been preserved too long and there was not the right fluid to preserve them in when these samples were collected. So we immediately went off site. There were six of us and we said, okay, we have to accrue over 200 patients now in our clinical trial. And to keep our project on track for launch, we have to do that within six months. And so we pivoted and immediately went out and ramped up 49 sites, enrolled 5,000 patients and launched our product six months in advance of when we originally thought we would. So That's great. so impressive. Thank you for sharing that story. Okay, so focus and prioritization, list five to 10 goals at the beginning of the year, have a plan long term, and then always have a plan B and anticipate. There you go. You sit on several boards, including Bruker Corporation and the Biotechnology Innovation Organization and previously Castle Biosciences. Many women I speak to are looking for their first board position. What advice would you have for them? You know, I think preparing to be on boards, um, you know, it's it's really about advancing your career and and delivering on the experiences that make you attractive to either an organization or a company where your talent and experience adds value. Now, often on, for example, public company boards, um, you try to build a board uh, with diversity 
Um, obviously diversity as it, you know, relates to gender and other aspects of diversity. But what I mean in this case of diversity is you want to have representation on the board of people who have deep experience in parts of your business where you may face risk that maybe you personally don't have a lot of depth in. One example of that is often um, companies that are moving into a regular market and maybe the CEO doesn't have a lot of regulatory experience, then they might recruit someone to come onto their board that brings that level of expertise. So I think now, and often, you know, public company CEOs are very often sought to be on other company boards because you bring the perspective of having been there and done it. You've experienced what the CEO is experiencing. Also, public companies look for um, financial experts. It's actually one of the requirements. So if you're a CFO of a company, if you're in a private company, your first step would likely be to seek a board role as a financial expert for a private company. And then once you get that experience, perhaps that company goes public or you go public, then you'd have the, the right credentials to seek a public company. Um, position and chair and help with audit committee, for example. So there's no one size fits all. It's very individual company, what the company needs that's recruiting for that. But by being very aware of your own talents and expertises and knowing where you might fit on a board, if you have a specific um, technology expertise, then tagging companies that are in that technology area where you think you could really bring something to the table and network, 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 um, network with agencies that recruit for board members, network, um, you know, through CEOs and other executives that participate on boards and with any board members that you might know that can coach and help get you visibility. Wonderful. Oh, thanks, Bonnie, for that advice. That's awesome. Um, and then lastly, what can we do as executive level women in the workplace to support the next generation of female leaders? You know, I um, one of the proudest things about building Verisite has been the very natural, organic way in which we went from founding the company with zero employees to building today what is a 750 global employee enterprise in about 14 years. And along that journey, um, I, it was great to look next to me and find that my first hire, who happens today be the chief science officer and chief medical officer of the company, uh, Dr. Julia Kennedy, another uh, executive female. When I took the company public, I had a female CFO in the company. Um, when we did our IPO, there were 78 other IPOs that year and only two were led by women. So we're rare. But I think that women that make it to the top naturally are comfortable hiring other women because we know we can do the job as well as anybody, right? We don't have that bias, so to speak. 
Um, and, you know, you always have to hire the very best talent into each open position you have. I mean, that has to be number one. Um, but you, you really need to stay cognizant of the power of a company when you have many diverse perspectives and experience to the table, gender really being just one of them. And I think um, interns, bringing interns in, embracing high school and college programs where you can encourage young younger women to pursue science. Um, mentoring is a great way to encourage young women to really try to, you know, pursue their dreams and, and develop a love of science and technology, the STEM, if you will. Um, and then it also has to have ad advocacy by organizations like BIO, which I'm on the board of. And we do have a strong initiative at BIO to try to change the landscape. But it does take time. And I think the younger we can start with getting girls, young girls excited about their dreams of pursuing uh, scientific type uh, careers, uh, the better we'll be a decade from now and seeing many more women, not only leading companies, but also in the boardroom. Thank you, Bonnie. And thank you for being one of those two out of 78 women that <laughs> led a company to IPO um, back then and, and, you know, giving women of these opportunities. It's been great. And, and thank you so much for your time. It was an honor to have the time with you and to, to hear your advice. And um, yeah, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Claire. It's been a pleasure. And of course, um, we should all be in on Women's International Day indeed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening. ProClinical Executive are proud to be global growth partners in life sciences. For more information about how we can support the growth of your board and leadership team, please visit proclinical.com forward slash executive.